With a population of approximately 2.7 million people, Chicago ranks as the third largest city in the United States and boasts a richly diverse demographic. Chicago has received accolades as the second best city globally and the best big city in the U.S. for five consecutive years. However, it grapples with persistent racial segregation and disparities. Media often depict Black neighborhoods in Chicago as poverty-stricken, crime-ridden, and marked by deteriorating buildings. This narrative largely overlooks the historical and structural factors responsible for these issues. Government policies such as highway construction, zoning regulations, and redlining have physically separated communities and limited Black residents' housing and job opportunities, contributing to economic challenges in predominantly Black neighborhoods. Earlier this year, the Chicago Urban League unveiled its State of Black Chicago report for 2023, shedding light on the enduring challenge of hypersegregation in the city. The Chicago Urban League periodically publishes the State of Black Chicago to evaluate the well-being of Black residents within the city. For this year's report, they partnered with Loyola University Institute for Racial Justice to delve into essential indicators across categories such as income, employment, housing, education, health and the environment, and crime and justice. In this episode of the HC3 podcast, we had the privilege of sitting down with Karen Freeman Wilson. Karen assumed her role as president and CEO of the Chicago Urban League in January 2020. Her professional background encompasses legal expertise, previous experience as a judge, and a successful career in politics. She held the position of Indiana Attorney General and served as the mayor of Gary, Indiana. Karen is deeply dedicated to the causes of equity and social justice. Her support is instrumental in advancing the Chicago Urban League's mission of fostering economic, educational, and social progress for the city's Black community through both direct service and advocacy. This is the HC3 Podcast. We're your hosts, David Smith, and Megan Phillip. This episode of the HC3 podcast is sponsored by HC3's managing entity, Third Horizon Strategies. Third Horizon Strategies is a consulting firm focused on shaping a future system that actualizes a sustainable culture of health nationwide. The firm offers a 360-degree view of complex challenges across three horizons, past, present, and future, to help industry leaders and policymakers interpret signals and trends, design integrated systems, and enact changes that all communities, families, and individuals can thrive. With staff located in 10 states across the U.S., Third Horizon Strategies is available to support organizations with services ranging from strategic planning, program implementation, research, and data analytics. Learn more about who we are and what we do at thirdhorizonstrategies.com. So, Karen, Chicago Urban League, 107-year-old organization, That is absolutely right. The Chicago Urban League was founded over 100 years ago, 107 to be exact, as you've said. And the Urban League grew out of the migration of Blacks from the South to Chicago. Those Blacks were looking to get housing, jobs, to get their children acclimated with educational opportunity. And the Chicago Urban League was the center of helping new residents do just that. So if I had been a resident of Baton Rouge or Fayetteville or Gainesville and I'm going to Chicago, one of the first stops I'm going to make at that time is the Chicago Urban League. What did that kind of look like? That is absolutely right. And so one of the first stops you would have made would have been here to inquire about a job, to inquire about housing where the best locations were, to inquire about the best schools for your children and those opportunities, and to inquire about support if you wanted to start a business, if you had the entrepreneurial spirit. And the um, interesting part is that we're still doing all of those things today. And so we have a center for workforce development. We do housing and financial empowerment. We do entrepreneurship. 
and innovation. And we also have a leadership development program now that is directed at young Black professionals as well as research and policy. And the research and policy, while it wasn't at the beginning, it started very early on as Chicago was experiencing a large influx of Black residents. And it was important and necessary to understand the challenges that these residents faced and how best to address those challenges. And it was done through our research and policy department. So in the 50s, 60s, 70s, as this second migration is occurring throughout the country, people that are engaging with the League have a very specific need, a specific interest. The League is organized around that. You're doing that same work today with the same community, but that that need has changed. This is no longer somebody entering a community and saying, I need to get acclimated. These are now people probably by and large from the community that are trying to advance their prospects. Is that kind of accurate? That is like, accurate. How have the needs shifted? So the the same needs in terms of employment, housing, education, and in many instances, the same need for acclimation. Because if you think about the fact that many of the people who come to us have just had a difficult or a challenging time getting their footing, finding their way. And so while they may not be new residents to the city, they are still trying to become acclimated to life. And so you're not new to Chicago, but you're trying to navigate life. You might be new to different ideas about where you want to take your life that and is correct. need resources and support to help you make those decisions. That's I love that. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. You all very recently published a report. And of course, as of the taping of this episode yesterday, there was a convening around this, the State of Black Chicago report. Talk a little bit about that report. Where did it come from? How long have you been doing it? And what is the state of Black Chicago in October 2023? So we published the State of Black Chicago biennially, and this is about the 10th edition of the State of Black Chicago that has been published by the Chicago Urban League. And it is sort of a level set that we do every two years to focus on the progress or lack thereof in the Black community. And in this particular edition of the report that came out in June of 2023, we observed a number of things. We observed challenges in terms of the income disparity between Blacks and whites and the Latin community. We observed educational disparities in terms of the completion of high school. Ironically, we did not observe, or at least we saw, that Blacks attained college degrees at a higher rate than their Latino counterparts. So that was the one area that uh, we saw progress. Notwithstanding that progress, the home ownership attainment, the income levels were lower. Uh, many of the measures that you would think would accompany higher achievement of college degrees were not there. And so it underscored that education alone is not enough, that you have to have education and access to opportunities to really allow that education to work for you or to make it work for you. And that's one of the observations of the report. As you think about and reflect on it, what do you think were the contributing factors or forces to that increase in educational outcomes? Where are there opportunities to continue to push that? Well, one of the things that we know is that there are any number of scholarship programs that support young Black students who come out of high school who are good students and who want to pursue their college education. In fact, there are a number of organizations who support scholarships, who provide scholarships, and a number of students 
can get into college, and there was a rise in matriculation at HBCUs. So we know that that has a large influence on the statistics that we see. The challenge that we sometimes also see is completing college, because you can get in, but as you get to the third year and fourth year, it's harder to get the financial support that you need. But what we have seen is that students who start persevere and they're able to finish, but then you have to get a job and you're saddled in many instances with student loans and that becomes a real conundrum for some of them. With the recent Supreme Court ruling around affirmative action, do you think that's going to have an impact on this progress that you've made that they're trying to kind of reverse some of those opportunities? Well, I think that for the largest part, there will be colleges, admissions officers, and college leadership who will think about the importance of having a diverse student body and look at ways to ensure that diversity that is not necessarily premised solely on race. I mean, there are other types of standards, measures that will yield diversity that will have nothing to do with race. Sometimes it's your income. Sometimes it's your geography, where you live. Sometimes it's the status of your family or, you know, head of household. If you have a female head of household or a single parent, household, all of those things can be looked at and considered and still yield a diverse student population. Yeah, a number of different mechanisms. Sure, your neighborhood, what neighborhood do you live in? Yeah. Was there anything in the State of Black Chicago report from this year, anything that really surprised you? Well, you know, we always hear about how segregated the city of Chicago is. And so I certainly thought that there would be a a level of segregation that would reflect our history. And we determined that there are 27 of the 77 neighborhoods that have at least 85% Black residents, which is fairly high. But even with that large concentration in those neighborhoods, I found it surprising that Blacks live all over the city, notwithstanding that history of segregation. And so that's promising because we now know that people tend to be more mobile and very often with that mobility dependent on where they move comes opportunity. If I live, as an example, on the northwest side of the city, it might be easier for me to get a job at the airport because it's closer and there's less commute time. And so when you see that that type of movement, it does give rise to greater career opportunities and more affordable housing opportunities as well very often. You started this position, I think, in January 2020? I did, yes. Well, that was fortuitous. It's probably the first time you've ever thought about the timing of that, right? Well, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what a ride the last three and a half years must must have been. Talk a little bit about just the experience of coming in and navigating those first few months. And then, Karen, the other question is, how has the state of Black Chicago shifted today in 2020, October 2023, versus kind of as you were really coming into this role a few years ago? I came into the role in January of 2020, and the first 60 days were spent becoming acclimated to the staff, to a new place, a new city, meeting people. You know, Chicago is a very social city. So there's something to do every night if you want to do it in terms of, you know, work events, um, social, professional events. And so I was on roller skates during January and February. And of course, that came to a screeching halt in March or mid-March when the city shut down because of COVID. And in that halt came a heightened need for the services that the Urban League provides. Our first 
two departments that sort of rose to the challenge was our Center for Entrepreneurship and our Youth and Family Services team. Because the businesses that we service are largely very small businesses, less than 10 employees, a lot of solopreneurs. And so we had to help them really think through the pivot of their business because we had a very high representation of service businesses. So they were accustomed to their customers coming through their doors. So how do you pivot that service offering to ensure that you are able to still Mm. support yourself, your family, and still provide services to your customers. So that was something that we did very early on with the state of Illinois, with the city of Chicago, with the federal government to really provide that advice, counseling, support to our business clients. In addition to that, we had a very and still have a very robust after-school program and working with those students and really walking through the mental health challenges that many of them experienced because they were isolated from their friends, isolated from school, not just isolated, but they had to shelter in place. They couldn't go anywhere. I mean, think back when you were a teenager. You know, we lived to go places. Mom, can I? And, you know, you could say, can I, during the so pandemic. really well said. We live to go places. Yeah. That's, ex- that, that, that's you know? a great synopsis of childhood. <laughs> and uh, But you couldn't go anywhere. And so a lot of them became very depressed, and they were very open about their concerns, and we were able to talk them through that as we still provided services via Zoom and social media and uh, many other ways. And the same was true for those individuals in our workforce department and even some of our businesses who were not just worried about their viability, but just depressed about the future of their business. And so we were able to sit with entrepreneurs to not only talk them through their angst and their experience, but to provide some support for them in focus groups and other virtual platforms that helped us to help them. What is the state of Black Chicago today? How did the pandemic shift that state of Black Chicago? So in many instances, when you think about the pandemic and the impact on the Black community, we certainly saw the existence of health disparities and employment and educational disparities laid bare by the pandemic. But I think the opportunity that came out of the pandemic at the same time of underscoring these disparities and challenges, the opportunity that came through resources offered during recovery from the pandemic provided another opportunity for people to either get retooled through education, to shore up their financials through some of the stimulus that they received, to really gain a better handle on their students' educational progress or lack thereof. And we know that educationally, a lot of students were left behind, but it at least allowed parents to become more engaged in education. And while we still see statistical evidence of struggle as a result of the pandemic, parents are at least paying attention and know that it's not just grades that you need to look at. You need to really look at what your child is doing. And if nothing else, because students were engaged in the virtual classroom, parents were almost forced to pay attention to what particularly the younger students, students under middle school were doing. You know, one of the most 
common sentiments I heard through the whole of the pandemic around issues of social justice and health equity was, well, the pandemic is shining this light on these problems. And it always drove me insane, Karen, because like we have 70 years of epidemiological and statistical data. It's like we the light has been shown. We're all, it's, you use the term laid bare. Yes. And despite all the human suffering of the pandemic and the loss of life and the isolation, all the terrible things that came from it, there were little areas of silver linings, one of which I feel like, at least in the health industry or the, the circles I, I navigate, that there was this renewed sense of commitment, of purpose, of, of ubiquity and collaboration around underserved parts of the city because we were shining this light and everybody was excited and drinking the Kool-Aid. And the thing I was the most worried about in 2021, 2022 was that pandemic would end and then everybody would kind of go back to normal. The question for you is, and, and I'm talking the royal we business community, city, nonprofit, safety net. Have we forgotten or is there a risk that we're beginning to forget the important things we felt and learned during the pandemic? Or do you feel like there is still energy and inertia coming out of that period that buttresses the important work you do? So you're absolutely right about the fact that people just paid attention during the pandemic to Which is great. information that you already knew that I already knew, that we already knew. I think that they didn't just pay attention because folks were getting sick and dying. Had that been the beginning and end of the story, then it would have just been over very quickly. They paid attention because one, it was impacting people in every community, in every income. While some people got impacted more than others, everybody had an experience of seeing those that they cared about die. The other phenomenon of that was the fact that the pandemic coupled with the murder of George Floyd, I think made people more empathetic. That was the first time, even though there had been instances of police brutality, wrongful death before, that was the first time that all of it was on video. So folks could no longer say, well, you know, we don't really know what the details are. I mean, you knew the details of that. We all had this shared we, experience. Yeah, we had the shared experience. I mean, you know, you can't make any mistake about that one. And because of that, I think that people not only wanted to see something done, they wanted to do something. What can I do? How can I make this better? Is it in healthcare? Is it in my own company? Is it in my community? Is it in my school? What is my role of making America, my community, Chicago better? And that's what we saw certainly in 20 and 21. We still see it in 23. We just don't see, you see it with the same people, with folks who have always been committed to the cause. And so I think it is waning, but I think one of our responsibilities as the Chicago Urban League and community-based organizations like us is to keep it in front of folks. The need still exists. That's one of the important aspects of the state of Black Chicago, that we're able to say, we're not just talking about something in the abstract. These are real disparities. These are real challenges. This is why we need your help. There is real suffering. A lot of suffering. And the same kinds of suffering that we mm -hmm. saw in 2020 through 2022 when everyone was active, it just might, maybe it shows up differently or it manifests differently, but it still exists. And the fact that we're not talking about it every day or you're not seeing it in front of you on the news every yes. night doesn't mean it's not occurring. Exactly. A lot of the businesses that you supported, you like you said, they had to pivot during the pandemic and there were lots of challenges, no matter who you were, to, to just reimagine and rethink what you're doing. And what we're starting to see, I, I'm using the restaurant industry as an example, is that many survived and thrived, but now we're starting to see closures again. We're having an economic downturn. The long-term ripple effect of the economy is just starting to, to wane. So how are 
your constituents and the people that you serve feeling during this time of limited resources and, and rising cost and things like that? And what are some of the challenges and opportunities that your team sees as you help kind of navigate this new chapter? So we saw among our businesses about a 40% closure rate during the pandemic. So it was really? significant. Yeah. I had no idea it was that high. And so that has actually gone down for us. And we've not seen as much of an impact during the last year where there was this anticipated downturn in the economy. And part of that was that the businesses that were most vulnerable closed during the pandemic. And those that were able to pivot, stood the test of time, and they either found other products to provide or did something else. I was at a convening where there was a business person who was a printer, and the demand for their printing services decreased. But he was able to retool some of his equipment to produce masks during the pandemic. His business skyrocketed. And so that is the type of, you know, innovation, the type of kind of thinking or rethinking that we supported during that time. You know, a lot of people who were having folks come in for takeout, of course, started delivery services or started other conveniences that made it a lot of easy, you know, curbside services, all of those things, uh, went on the platforms that make deliveries for you. We were able to get people converted to all of those options. And as a result, they were not as vulnerable during this downturn in the economy. The other piece that I wanted to dig in and see where we are on the spectrum is around education and access. And especially during the pandemic, a lot of that was flipped to digital, but there's this digital divide that we see. And so what sorts of barriers did you see there, if any? And is that something that you're measuring in some of the practices that, that you guys are trying to achieve within the communities that you're serving? I, I don't know. I haven't talked to anybody at Comcast or any of our partners that are doing that great work to to expand our networks and think about that. But I'm just curious about that. You know, the adage is like, you know, we can give you the device, but if you don't have a connection, then then how is it helpful? Um, so how, you know, how are you guys navigating those pieces? So that was one of the highlights, I think, and high points of the overall recovery plan, the American recovery plan, but also how Chicago responded. And that was because of the recognition of this digital divide and the importance of digital equity. And so Chicago Connected was the first program in the country to not only ensure that all of the students in the public school system, the Chicago public schools, had a device, but had access to connectivity. And it was done in partnership with the Comcast, Verizons, and AT&Ts of the world. And it was the precursor to the national program that reduced internet significantly. And so I think if there was one silver line, and, and, and you know, I think that depending on who you talk to, you would find other silver linings to the pandemic. But the one that I would hold up from a digital equity standpoint is the fact that there was greater connectivity thanks to the Chicago Connected program and the recognition that by shutting down uh, whole institutions, you were like the libraries and other public places where people would historically access the internet that you had to come up with an alternative. And most of the companies answered that call. Just to put a bow around part of what you said, we recently put out this national body of work around a digital infrastructure disparities score. And we actually used four different 
pieces of information to determine if there was inequities or disparities around the ability to access a digital connection. One is just the base connection itself. Two is the speed at which that connection runs and fascinating. In some of these communities, you're running the same exact stuff, but over here on this side of the highway, we're dropping the speed and on the other side, we're pushing it. So it starts to look like this digital redlining concept. That's real. It, I think it is. We, we've actually, Karen, we've been beating up the data aggressively to find a statistical, we can see a correlation. We mm -hmm. haven't seen causality, but we believe it's where we have advisors that are working as part of this, this working group, but have given us really powerful stories. The third is, do I have a connection or do I have a modality, right? An iPad, a phone, a laptop. And the fourth and final is like, can I even afford the data, right? So we put those together. And in Chicago, just the disparities in our city by zip code, profound. Profound. I would love to see that. I'd love to know your thoughts on it. You were mayor of Gary, Indiana from 2011 through 2019. Yes, actually I was elected in 2011. I, I took office in 2012. Okay. So 2012 to 2019. Okay. Yes. Well, we're number one, we're so happy to have you in Chicago. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> and I'm sure you were equally glad to have served the people of uh, Gary, Indiana. It was the honor of my lifetime. Well, so I, I, I want to do kind of one of those compare, like Gary, Chicago, what have you learned kind of questions, but but I'm going to take a departure um, and just ask a separate thing, and then I'll get back to that other one. What What made you want to get into politics? What made you, What motivated you to run for mayor of Gary? From the time that I was seven, I had access to the first black mayor. He was campaigning. Uh, my parents hosted a campaign event. Just, you know, at that time, people would go from house to house having coffee. And the mayor came. My parents invited some friends over. And I was just enamored with what he said. You know, I was an only child at that time. And you were seven. And he was talking about wanting to help the city and all of the things that he was going to do. And to the, as I sit here, I can't tell you exactly what he said other than I just thought it was just such a noble thing to want to help. And I decided I wanted to do that. And he was um, mayor for 20 years. So that was in 66. He was elected in 67. And for the next 20 years, he was always accessible. You would see him in the community. And whenever I would see him, of course, because I had met him early on in his career. It was always, there's my mayor. I'd make a beeline and, you know, have a conversation. <laughs> and my mother was like, would you please leave the mayor alone? You know, I guess I became a little stalker. And uh, oh, it's amazing. throughout that time, he was always so generous. And, and it wasn't just me. It was many, many youth. Um, he had a youth track team. He had a youth league. He just really poured into young people. And I can remember graduating from high school and he heard that I had gotten accepted to Harvard and that I was thinking about not going. And he had me come down to City Hall so that I could talk to someone who he knew that was a student at Harvard. And the funny part was I decided that I, at that time, he didn't convince me. It wasn't until I had spent three days in this co-op program for the other school that I decided maybe I should uh, check into that Harvard school he was talking about. <laughs> but I mean, you know, who has that? I mean, my parents weren't big political people. My mom was civically engaged, but they weren't big donors or big supporters or anything like that. But he had enough care. And so seeing that and seeing how he served made me really want to serve. And so that was always on my radar from the time I was seven. What a beautiful story. Is he still alive today? He passed away, but in the last year that I served, probably two months before he passed, we were able to erect a statue in his honor in Gary. But you were serving while you had a relationship with him Absolutely. while you were serving. Oh, and he was he was very generous with his advice and oh. his time, even until the time that he passed. What a beautiful full circle moment, though, for both of you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember when we dedicated the statue, I had lost the election. And he leaned over and whispered. He said, you know, there's life after this office. 
And I said, thank you, Mayor. I'm sure there is. Always the mentor. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. So Gary is not Chicago. Chicago is not Gary, nor Des Moines, nor San Francisco, right? Every city is a little unique. We have our different personalities and histories. For sure. But I suspect that during your tenure as mayor of Gary, and now during your three and a half, almost four-year tenure here in Chicago, that you've seen patterns, things that might be similar in the work that you do, the focus areas that you have. I'd just be interested in where do things seem ubiquitous in terms of, of having an impact on underserved communities, Black opportunities, mobility, job creation, those things? Or what is really unique to Chicago? Like, what have you discovered here that has been less familiar to you in, in your experience so far? So the one thing that I would hold out that's very unique and really promising, quite frankly, to Chicago is not just the generosity, but also the interest of the corporate community. So not only are they willing to contribute to nonprofit organizations, to civic organizations, but they are also interested in how that impacts the future of the overall community. And it may be simply because of the volume here and that Gary was really a company town. And so that meant the the economy kind of rose and fell with the steel industry. And that's not the case in Chicago. I think the similarities are the nexus between educational opportunity and the quality of education and the fact that it is so tied to where you live and in many instances your property taxes less so in Illinois but still there's an element of that and that that creates this spiral and for many a downward spiral because if you don't get a high quality education you can still complete high school but your opportunities are limited your job choice is limited where you live is limited and all of those limitations lend themselves to really changing the course of your future and that's consistent from Gary to Chicago to Detroit to Atlanta to Washington, D.C., wherever. And I think that's why it's so important to me to really equalize educational opportunities. If you spend $10,000 um, a year or however um, often you spend it to educate a kid on the north side, you should do that on the south and west side. And we just haven't been able to achieve that, although I think that Chicago is closer than many other places that I've seen. And certainly it's closer than uh, Indiana. What a, what a positive refrain. Karen, one of the things I was really excited to ask you about, so I, I sit on the board of Sinai Chicago. There's, of course, this, you know, the Healthcare Council of Chicago, and there's other, you know, we do some some pro bono work down here. And so we're, we're involved in, and that's something we're, you know, we're proud of, but we also know there's so much work that needs to be done. One of the things we have observed over the course of time is that the the health system South side, southwest side, west side, and I know I'm using very broad strokes for something that's much more nuanced than that, but we have what seems to be a coming failure in infrastructure. We're not investing back in these facilities. We have we already have base workforce challenges, let alone getting trained and sufficient workforce into these communities and into these facilities to serve the demand. And so we see these these health equity gaps were already widening going into the pandemic. They widened all the more. What have you seen in your time here around our health system, our safety net hospitals, federally qualified health centers, and so on? Like where, where are we getting it right in Chicago? Where, where are there opportunities to, to get it better? And that doesn't even have to be a denigrating statement for the organizations. It could be funding or Medicaid rates or whatever. But do you have any thoughts about what's good, what's bad, what can we do differently? I think it's really when you think about the access to preventive care, because ultimately that will not only save money, it will save lives. And very often you don't have that routine access to preventive care um, on the south and west sides that you might have in other places. And it's not that you can't go, but the awareness 
is not at the level that would encourage people to go, whether they feel like they need a doctor or not. Regular checkups, routine eye exams, routine dental exams, all of those things are a part of preventive health care and ultimately could impact your long-term health, long-term longevity, and you know how you live your lives, your quality of life. So I think that is where we are challenged. And I don't think that that is necessarily institution-based because you certainly have yeah. institutions here. You have FQHCs, you have safety net hospitals, you have, you know, you have access to healthcare. Although, you know, we've seen some closures in communities that have strained that access. Yeah. Oh, it's one of the, we're doing, we're doing some work down in Dallas with the city and a kind of a nonprofit partner that's helping to facilitate eligibility and enrollment for public benefits. So of course, one of the things we're looking at is, well, where are people that need public benefits going? So we know school, but we also know federally qualified health centers, community mental health centers. And so my team put up a list of all the FQHCs in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And I got the list and like, there were 22. And I was like, something must be wrong. It's like, it's like we have 90 and like seven city block sure. radius in Chicago. And so it's what we have, we do have infrastructure here. Sometimes I wonder if we're, if we're not being as efficient as we could be within, with, within the, the state ecosystem, city ecosystem and civic ecosystem to really drive information sharing, drive ubiquity and programs, standards and methodologies for screening, preventive care, how we think about Medicaid and insurance, that kind of dissonance seems it's not a paralyzing factor, but it seems like it might be getting in our way. Is, have it you observed those things? Oh, you're absolutely right. I think it's certainly hampering us. And I would say that while certain networks do work together, it's not the level of coordination that would make it seamless and that would ensure that residents would get whatever they need in the most optimal way. It just doesn't happen that way. So I love what you said when you were telling the story about your background and really following the footsteps of, of a mentor and someone that you learned from. And also what you said at the beginning with, with the Urban League and how you are offering people an insight into a version of themselves that they didn't know was there. And I think that this is reflective back to this education and healthcare access piece because a community-based organization we work with, I'm gonna get his uh, story wrong, but, but, but essentially we practice what we're taught. And what he was taught about the healthcare system was when you have a problem, go to the emergency room. And so I just wonder, this is what people are exposed to. And we take for granted the world that each of us grows up in. And it takes just that one moment like you had where a person came into your life and that sparked something. So how do we spread more seeds? How does the Urban League create more spaces like that? I know you guys do a great job, but I would love to hear about how we do that in mass to broaden our reach around how you uplift all these things, access to education, access to healthcare, access to the things that will make you whole and think differently about what your worth is and how you interface with the city of Chicago. The short answer is exposure matters, right? Yeah. And so the question then becomes, how do you expose young people to different things? Um, I'll use myself as an example. So I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, but for me, the definition of a lawyer was what I saw on television, which was largely a lawyer in a courtroom. And so I became a trial lawyer. That was what I aspired to be. And if someone tried to talk to me about some other type of law, I was like, no, 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 that's not really a lawyer. <laughs> My daughter, on the other hand, is a transactional lawyer because she got the exposure to a number of types of law and decided, no, 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 I don't want to be in the courtroom like my mom. I want to be a transactional lawyer. And so that's really what we do here at the league. We try to expose our clients to a variety of things. In fact, with our youth, one of the things that we really ramped up during the pandemic because it was easy to do on Zoom was exposing young folks to any variety of jobs. We would have folks come in from an organization, as an example, Hulu, Google, uh, ComEd, 
any company and say, give us five examples of jobs in your organization. And so we were able to let them know that, you know, it's not only being a lineman or woman or, you know, doing something that is utility facing for a comet. You could be a meteorologist and work for ComEd because they employ meteorologists in addition to, you know, accountants and lawyers and uh, public affairs people. The same was true for many other companies that we interfaced with. But even in thinking about the type of career development, we had a pivot. And again, during the pandemic, where a lot of the companies that were looking for entry-level employees would historically come to the league, and they still do. So the Amazons, the UPSs of the world. But at one point during the pandemic, we said, what are the jobs of the future? What are people going to be working in that will not only allow them to make uh, a decent salary, but a family-sustaining career. And that's when we got into sustainability and started to teach people about solar and EV installation, solar sales, drone um, operation, the cybersecurity, pharmacy tech. All of those things are family-sustaining careers, and that's where we focus. But again, that's not something you would typically think about if you came to an urban league. It was all about exposure. And then another aspect of that exposure is what are you thinking about home ownership? How does that impact your life? You know, typically people pay rent. They feel like they're free to go from place to place. But as we began to expose our employment clients or workforce clients, our young people to more, we began to talk to them about, you know, home ownership early in their lives so that they could, in fact, accumulate wealth in that manner. The last thing about exposure is just the type of activities. Right now, we have a partnership with the Lyric Opera, helping our young people to understand the front of the house, the back of the house, and they perform an opera. They write perform an opera during the course of the year. And those types of opportunities help them to begin to think differently. It exposes them to more. And that is really what you're talking about when you talk about thinking differently, aspiring differently. It's all based on what you are accustomed to, what you know, and what you're exposed to. Yeah. I I have one last question. And so that's just a little bit further downstream, you know, the family sustaining piece. So for the folks that have lost jobs or lost their business and the folks that I think the barrier when you are educated and you are now trying to feed your family and also childcare and the things that come up that challenge having a job and keeping a job and those sort of obstacles that continue to weigh on on all of us, really. What types of coaching and support are you guys thinking about or advocating for in that respect as we think about even our older populations? So it's interesting that you would mention that because we had a project with the AARP and a number of other organizations to kind of just help our seniors to begin to think about what happens in the future. How do you pass your property to your children? Do you have something to pass? How do you live a life that is less encumbered? And I think that it's important for us to help community members at every stage of life. People often focus on the youth, but, you know, when you think about a person who has worked their entire life, who has dedicated significantly to their families, and then they get to their years where they should really be having a good time, and they have to worry about food or medicine. You want to provide support so that that choice never has to be confronted. And so that is something that we're looking more and more at as we encounter seniors and and determine how best to serve them. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's like you said, it happens at all levels. And right now, yeah. I think it's incredibly important. And there is a lot of focus on our youth because they are the future, yes. but also to make sure that we honor and, and support those that have raised raised and brought those folks into the world. I think yes. that's really great that you have thoughts and partnerships to, to think about all aspects of our community because it just makes all of us more whole and more effective. For sure, for sure. Karen, last question. For anybody listening to this that through the course of the conversation has caught the Chicago Urban League bug and want to be a part of helping you and your colleagues continue to push your mission forward for another 107 years, how can people get involved? What are the needs or the gaps you guys have that the rest of us should be thinking about? How can we help? We have a variety of volunteer opportunities, generally um, around our youth. So we have a youth summit where about a thousand young people gather in March, and we're always looking for chaperones for that. We generally have from two to 250. We also have a back to school event, and that's generally in August, where we welcome families and provide book bags and kits for young people to get back to school. We always look for people to stuff those bags. Um, <laughs> also in February, have a health fair and um, generally are looking for someone to work with us around that health fair. And so there are any number of opportunities to come and spend time around the league. We always welcome the public to our events. We have convenings throughout the year um, that are policy and advocacy related. We have one fun event, and that is normally the first Saturday in November. It's called our Gala Golden Fellowship Dinner. And uh, it's always a uh, party with a purpose. This year, we'll have the Isley Brothers. So there are any number of opportunities to just spend time and and learn about the league. And we always invite people to our website at chiul.org. The HC3 Podcast is a production of Third Horizon Strategies. Associate producers are Megan Phillip and Topher Rasmussen. Executive producer is David Smith. The music is by Don Finter. Help others find our show by leaving a review and a comment. For more information about the Healthcare Council of Chicago, please visit our website, www.hc3.health, or drop an email to meghanmegan at hc3.health. Lastly, we want to express our appreciation to the incredible community organizations who have tirelessly devoted themselves to the betterment of the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. We'll see you next time.